Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. Uh, There is a new shrine that has been built uh, nearby here. In, in recent years. And at this shrine, there is every sort of evil that you can imagine. It forces people who go there to, to change their body posture as they rhythmically perform the same rites and rituals day after day after day. There is a, a virtual uh, salad bar of, of deviance. There is addictions and habits as far as the eye can see. There is a bar that serves drinks laced with pure adrenaline and outrage. Everything that is repulsive can be found at this place. Everything ugly and gross that we as humans have come up with can pass through the doors of this place. And people who frequent this shrine often destroy their relationships. They frequently experience a deep sense of anxiety, unexplainable bouts with depression. This shrine encourages avarice and jealousy and envy. It promotes the worst sort of greed in us. And the saddest thing, statistically speaking, about this shrine is that 81% of Americans have already visited it this morning. And in a congregation with the sort of age and demographics of ours, that number goes up to near 100%. This pocket shrine, this mobile temple has captured our attentions and bound us to its gods with lightning fast Wi-Fi speed. I am, of course, talking about our phones, those excellent rectangles that we all carry with us and their capacity for destruction in our life. Now, look, I know, I know I can see myself right now. I can see you and I know I'm giving off like strong old man shakes his fist at the clouds vibes, right? I get that. Like, I know that, right? Because I'm sitting up here, and, and I also know that the level of irony is thick, that you can see the light reflecting off my face that is coming from my iPad as I read this thing, this screed that I have written against the same devices. I know that. I understand that. I get that. But think about it. Think about the ways that our phones have shaped us. How many of you experience Phantom rings, right? If you keep your phone in your pocket, how many of you right, will feel that leg twitch when nothing's there? More of us than we care to admit, right? How about this? Have you ever, um, have you ever felt separation anxiety from your phone? Let me, let me give you for instance. Let's say that you're bringing the groceries in from the car and you left your phone in the car. 
Do you ever say, you know what? That's okay. I'll go get my phone when I need it. I'll just let it sit in the car by itself, and it'll be fine. Or is your gut reaction to stop what you are doing, to leave the frozen foods in the bag, to go get your phone? It's probably that one. It's that one for me. And and let's not even... Let's not even ask ourselves the question where we would compare the amount of time we spend in prayer and Bible reading with our screen time. Let's, let's not even go there, okay? Here's the thing. None of us signed up for this idea of digital maximalism, of being hyper-connected, of being always on. We, we never sort of signed that terms of service at all. And yet we got here, didn't we? All of us. I mean, I remember when it was like a novelty. You had a friend who had a smartphone and it was kind of cool. And then it was like, oh, well, most people have a smartphone now, I guess. And now 81% of Americans have smartphones. And probably in our congregation, that number is far above 90. And it just sort of happened that we began to live our lives circling around our phones. And then, and then, and then the pandemic happened. And what? Our phone became our only link to other humans. Whether it was Zoom or FaceTime whether it was phone calls or text messages, social media or whatever else, our phone was it. That was all. That was, that was the only way to really talk to other people. Our only human interaction was mediated through these black mirrors. And so I bring all this up, not to say that phones are inherently sinful. I've got one. It's right here but to say that our phones have shaped us in ways that we don't even think about. When do you ever let a notification go unchecked? When do you say, nah, I'll get that later? I mean, look, we don't even do that for church. I don't even do that for church. And that's, see, that's, that's the thing. This, this is where I'm heading with this. Because our phones are not inherently sinful. They expose the sin that we already have. But what our phones and our interaction with our phones show us is what we actually worship. Your app activity history is a catalog of your actual lived belief system. Of what you actually worship. Of what I actually worship. Because the things that we do, here's what worship is. Worship is the things that we do intentionally, habitually, and with our hearts, minds, and bodies. Worship is the things that we do intentionally, habitually, and with our hearts, 
minds, and bodies. Trouble is that more often than not, our habits, our intentions, and the things that we do with our hearts, minds, and bodies are not worship God. That's not the direction that our worship is pointed in. We're going to read Ezra chapter 3. Now, if you were here last week or you were watching online last week, you know we did Ezra 1, and you might say, why not do Ezra chapter 2, Justin? Well, because there's a lot of names in Ezra chapter 2, and my Hebrew is not that great, and the whole chapter is just a census of which families were able to return uh, to Israel. So we're going to kind of gloss over that if you want to read it, if you want to ask me after the service about, oh, how do you say this name? I'll be happy to give it a, an attempt. Um, but we're going to start in chapter 3. And as we do, I would ask that you would stand with me as we hear God's Word. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak and his fellow priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, offer, or with, and with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the people of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings mornings and evenings. And they kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, each day as required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings of the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundations of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the Masons and the Carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed to the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work on the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together with the workmen of the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites and their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all of the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because of the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's house, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away. 
City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 2,500 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. So Ezra tells us this story of God's people beginning to rebuild the temple. And what's really fascinating about the way that Ezra tells the story, the way that that Ezra writes this book, is he's not writing it in a strict chronological order. If you kind of follow along, Ezra is jumping from like one king to the next. If you like pay close attention, it's like, oh, this happened with Cyrus. And And then over here is Darius. Well, wait a minute. You just skipped, you just, you just yada, yada, yada over 50 years. You can't yada, yada, yada 50 years, but he does. Because what he's trying to do is not tell us a chronological story, but he's trying to tell us a theological story. And so what he says is the people of Israel were sent back to the land. We talked about that last week. And then he says, and here's who was sent back to the land. And we skipped that this week. And then he comes to this chapter, to chapter three, and he says, And the first thing that they did, they did the thing of first importance first. What was that? They restarted and rebuilt the altar where the temple was. And it's interesting that that it actually happened um, in whatever year, because dating Ezra can be difficult, it actually happened this weekend, however many years ago. Um, Because uh, many of you know that Saturday, uh, yesterday was Rosh Hashanah which is the first day of the seventh month. When does this happen? The first day of the seventh month. So it just so happens to line up that this weekend, we're talking about something that happened this weekend 2,500 years ago. And why does that happen? Because Ezra's telling us, on the first day of the new year, on the first day of the new year, when the people were back in the land, what did they do? What was the thing that was of first importance? Well, they built an altar and they started to worship God there. And it's interesting that um, in our Christian calendar, December is kind of like the busy month, right? You've got Christmas and all of that stuff. Well, in the Jewish calendar, this month is the month. Rosh Hashanah is this week. And then in Two weeks, uh, and then in 10 days is um, Yom Kippur, and then four days after that is uh, the Feast of Booths. It's like, it's like, imagine if Easter and Christmas and throw another good day in there were all in one month, right? All of it all together, let's just get the parties out of the way. That's what they did, and they started, and they said, we're going to do all of these things, and it says that they kept the Feast of Booths exactly according to the way it should be kept. In Leviticus, it takes 27 verses to lay out what kind of animal should be killed on which day at what time during the Feast of Booths. Like it's, as as we say, it's a whole thing. They're living in tents and they're sacrificing these animals at like, okay, at noon on the third day you do this and then at, at dusk on the fifth day you do that and you kind of do all of this together. That's what's happening here. But whatever it was, what it shows us is that Christian worship is a first priority for those of us who follow Jesus. That there is something fundamental about us being together 
and worshiping together. Now look, if you're watching this on the video, this is not shade for pandemic time folks who for reasons of wisdom and an ability to take care of kids and parents and all of that are staying home. It's not what I'm saying. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But what I am saying is that Christian worship is of first and utmost priority for us. Why? Because it is true Christian worship that pushes out and that squeezes out false worship. Because there's no Christian is ever, or no human is ever truly getting to answer the question, will you worship? We don't get to choose that because as humans, we will worship something. The question is, what are we going to worship? And sometimes we choose this intentionally. Sometimes we choose this intentionally, but a lot of times, I think what happens is our hearts are distracted and stolen away in ways that we don't even perceive. I mean, think back. Think back to the first time you held a smartphone in your hand. Did you have any idea what was coming? I didn't. I, I remember, you know, again, I totally sound like old guy shaking his fist at the cloud, but I, like, like, I remember, I, I watched a documentary this week, and one of the guys in the documentary was like, oh yeah, like he's like, what did he do? He's like, oh, I invented the like button. <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah, there was a time where there wasn't a like button. And therefore, there was a time where there was no dopamine rush from getting that like, from seeing that notification, from your phone buzzing to say that somebody thinks your picture is cool. We don't get to choose what we worship. Sometimes we are abducted by forces we can't see, what Paul calls the, the principalities and the powers of the air. Church, there are things that you and I can't see, that you and I can't perceive, that are fighting for our attention and fighting for our worship. And they're going to use any means possible to try to distract us, to try to take our eyes off of Jesus. But that's, no one intended to get addicted to likes. None of us set out to have separation anxiety from our phones, but here we are. And what we worship will always transform us. Worship, by its very nature, terraforms our souls into the image of what we are worshiping. You may not, you may not see it outright because it's subtle, but the things that we worship are what we become. Take just a second to go through the mental Rolodex of your behavior on the phone. What, what is that shaping you to be? What are, what are the things that you're watching at night shaping you to be? What are these things shaping me to be? But this passage shows us a number of things of what true Christian worship looks like. It's intentional. They did it on the first 
day of the first month. It's intentional. Worship for Christians is not something we do when we feel like it. Worship for Christians is not something that's like, well, you know, like it's raining and the parking garage is like 100 yards away. And I just, I just can't this morning. Because when we choose not to worship, what we're actually choosing is to worship something else. You cannot make the decision not to worship. You can only make the decision to turn the direction of that. Christian worship is intentional. It is, it is orderly. Did you catch as I read through it, like how many times Ezra was like, they did this according to the scriptures. They did this just like Moses told them. They did this in exactly the right way. It's because Christian worship is orderly. It's, it's meant to have shape and be given shape by the Bible. We don't, we don't sing songs at City Church because we like the concert vibe. You know, I mean, we don't sing songs at City Church because it seems like the thing to do, right? I mean, look, if you want to do that, you can go to, to well, in, in the before times, you could go to any coffee shop or kava house or brewery and find some dude with an acoustic guitar playing, if you could only see, by tonic and, and playing awful Dave Matthews covers. A little baby. That's not why we worship. We worship because God says, sing songs to me. We confess our faith because God says, when you get together, responsively confess your faith. The reason we worship the way that we do at City Church is we believe that God tells us what to do in the Bible. And if he does, we probably ought to pay attention to that. We probably ought to order our worship service the way that God says to do that. Just like the people in Ezra did. And not only that, but it involved their hearts and minds and bodies. This is something we don't think about a lot when we think about worship. Most of the time when we think about worship, we think about, we think about an emotional experience. And that is true and that is good. But worship is not just an emotional experience. It needs to engage our mind. And it needs to engage our bodies. What we do with our bodies in worship matters. That's that's why at City Church we do things like standing up when we read the text of the Bible. That's not just like a, I don't know, seems pretty cool, you know? I get to tell you what to do and I make all you people do it. Ha! Gotcha! Right? No! This is because what we're doing with our bodies matters. This is, here's a subtle thing you probably have never paid attention to at City Church. What direction do I face when we confess our sins together? That way. Same direction as all of you. But here's something else that's neat. What direction do I face when I remind you of God's forgiveness? I face you. Because I get to stand in the place and say, here's what God is saying to you this morning. What we do with our bodies matters in worship. And it's not just that everything is happy all the time. <laughs> it's not just that everything is happy all the time and things never go wrong. Things go wrong, right? Kids like to talk. Kids like to throw things in worship. It happens. 
I mean, and, and even you see something kind of crazy happening in this story. They start to not just rebuild the altar, but they start to rebuild the temple. They lay the foundation again. And what happens? Everybody's really excited, right? It's a big party. Everybody's having a good time, except not everybody is having a good time. While the younger people are excited that they've been able to rebuild the temple, the older people are looking at it going, "Uh uh-uh, that is nothing like what Solomon did. What Solomon did was so much, ugh, this is a cheap knockoff. This is a great value temple. And they weep. They weep. One of the other things that Christian worship teaches us, that Christian worship is, is it experiences the full range of who we are as people. It is not just happy all the time. It includes lament. Now, now my, my messed up psychological superpower is that I can reframe anything to be positive. Right? It is... It, it is both a great and a terrible flaw in me, right? Because I use this to deflect from any negative emotions, right? I'm, I'm like Chris Traeger in the spin room of the debate, right? I can turn anything into a positive. But what that means is I don't get to sit in sadness. I don't take time to face hurt and pain in my life. I deflect from it. But one of the things that Christian worship does is it forces me to slow down. It forces me to look at things square in the eye. When I have to come to church, when I stand together with you and face this direction and confess my sins, I have to slow down and be honest. Christian worship forms us. It changes us. It shows that we are not just here in times of joy, but times of sorrow. Christian worship, when structured the way that the Bible teaches us, forces us to see the whole picture of God's story, to see the gospel itself played out each week in our worship service. So for some of us, it's a reminder of what we need in Jesus. For others of us, It's a reminder of what Jesus has done for us. For some of us, Christian worship shows us where we need to grow. For others of us, it brings us comfort. And we're all in different spots at different times with this. And so, we read this story, and there is something lingering in the background. There's this kind of little thing that's going on, which is the cold hard fact that the reason why they're having to rebuild this temple is because our worshiping of false gods has consequences. The reason why Jerusalem was burned to the ground, the reason why Babylon came in the first place is because the people were worshiping other gods. That's why they had to return. That's why they were kicked out of Israel in the first place. It's because sin always breaks relationships. Idolatry, worshiping others' gods, always creates mistrust. Worshiping other gods 
kills compassion and destroys kindness. Any time that we worship another god, we, we don't do so because we're just like, <laughs> twirling our mustache going, let me ruin my life. Let me be evil today. No, none of us says that. Not one of us says that. <laughs> Coming in strong with the Sonic the Hedgehog heckling from the crowd. No, none of us says that. What we do though, what sin does is tricks us always promises us life. You, if you do this, you, you will feel better. If you do this, you will matter more. If, if, you, if you would just do this, things will work out. It always promises us the good life, and it always cancels us. This is what sin does. This is how, it's, <laughs> no, no, sorry. To, to use an illustration from the Bible, Sin always makes us think that we're going to bed with Rebecca and in the morning it's always Leah. Every time. And that's what Israel's worship of other gods has cost them. They've destroyed, they've had the destruction of the temple. Which is, you know, begs the obvious question for you and for me. What is our idolatry destroying in our lives? But as much as Israel's idolatry kind of lingers in this passage, something better comes to the forefront as we keep reading. That what? That God is faithful. He is with his people. What do they sing about? They sing about the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. This is a word we've talked about often at City Church. This is God's covenant faithfulness to his people. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love, his covenant faithfulness endures forever. God will never abandon us. God will never cancel us. God will never leave us on our lo- alone. Even when things change, even when we're in exile, God is faithful to his people. Why? Because God's faithfulness to his people is not based on our performance. Because God's faithfulness to his people is not based on how well we morally stack up. God's faithfulness is based on what Jesus has already done on our behalf. Jesus has taken the covenant cursing. So we might be the people who have the covenant blessing. Jesus has won the victory on our behalf through his life and his death and his resurrection. And he does this for us even when we can't pay him back. He does this for us expecting nothing in return. He does this for us sheerly out of mercy and grace and steadfast, faithful love for you and for me. Even though I am so quick to pull out my pocket shrine and worship something else. He turns again to me and says, I love you. He turns again to me and says, my grace is sufficient. He turns again to me and says, my mercies are new every morning. And so that, 
That church is what we look to. We look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We turn to him in worship. We repent of our our worship of other gods. And we see the story of Jesus and his love and his faithfulness to us again and again and again. Of his victory. We see the gospel as true and good and beautiful. And when we see that, when we see it in all its splendor, what happens in our heart is we worship. When we see Jesus as true and good and beautiful, we will worship him. And when we truly worship Jesus, that begins to root out the worship of other gods in us. And so church, our call this morning is not to be better, is not to try harder. The call this morning that we And Ezra chapter 3c is a call to see the faithfulness of Jesus and allow that message to soak you in the truth, goodness, and beauty of the gospel. Let's pray.